you, Pastor Tony, for all that you do serving the Lord in our church families. It's always good to celebrate what the Lord is doing each week, right? Thus, we're going to take some time right now. And I know, I'm pretty sure, unless you live under a rock or have been on the moon this last week, you heard the great news about Jane. And we as a church need to, rightfully so, stop and corporately praise God. Anyone who looks at this, and you'll find more of the details as we hear about some of them, as we get to some, maybe not see the whole story, but we, anyone who looks at this will have to use the word miracle, right? Because we have been praying that God would divinely work through this story. So what we're going to do as a church is we're going to pray right now three things. We're going to praise God. We're going to praise God. I mean, how many had tears that day, that night when you heard the news? I mean, my daughter fell to her knees and for two hours was just praise God, praise God. And then I mentioned, well, we're going to take time and, and pray and praise God. And she's like, if you don't, I'm running up on the stage at church and telling everybody, praise God. So we're going to praise God. Number two, we're going to pray for justice. And number three, we're going to pray for healing. So let's, if you want to, as a family, grab hands or sit closer to someone. Doug and Luke, come on up. And we're going to take time and pray over these things. We're going to praise the Lord. We're going to pray for justice. Because this is still an open case. It's very active still. And then we're going to pray for healing. So join us in prayer as we thank the Lord for what has happened. I'm going to take the first one on praise. A piece of scripture that I'd like to read to you first is from Genesis 50, verse 20. And that's uh, where Joseph is forgiving his brothers for taking him, uh, selling him into slavery. And that says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you in just great praise of the return of, of Jamie, it just is a, it is a miracle. It is amazing to us, Lord. We are thankful for the resolve of this little girl who found a way to escape. And then for all of those who... Uh, it wasn't just an accident. It was people that you put in place to help her, to rescue her, uh, to have the authorities come, and then to, to apprehend um, this criminal. Lord, we do uh, just praise and thank you that uh, her life was spared. We thank you that um, her health is well. She was not battered and bruised. And Lord, but we know there's going to be much... Uh, that will have to be accomplished here in the days to come. But we are praising you for what you have done, for the rescue of her. We praise you for all the people, uh, the law enforcement, and all the, the citizens who have uh, helped in this, uh, the searching, the praying, uh, the prayer vigils, um, all of the things that uh, took place here. Lord, you look down on favor um, over this situation. We just praise and thank you for um, her safe return to her family. Amen. Father, we also pray for justice. Lord, you are a just God. You have set parameters and laws for our benefit so that we could know you and worship you. And Lord, you have 
set within our society, within the way we live, certain people to govern over us, to bring justice. And Lord, in Romans 13, they are to be appointed as ministers, what would be one way you could translate it, to, to help bring justice to those who break the law. So Lord, we, we pray for justice. We pray that things that need to get exposed would be exposed, Lord. Bring light into the darkness, Lord. I know it seems pretty sure that this is where the case is. They found one man, but if there's other things connected, we pray for justice in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray also not just for this, but the many, many children. This is just horrific. That are still lost. We pray for justice, Lord. That people would be exposed. That those who do these heinous, horrible crimes, that they would be found out in the name of Jesus. That even tonight they would have horrible dreams and they would confess their sins. Lord, You are just, comma, but You are more than just. You are grace and mercy. And Lord, even though maybe in our hearts we're not ready for this, but Lord, we pray for this Patterson. We pray that he would see his sins and repent. We pray that he would turn to You. He would see the horrific things he has done. And Spirit of God, I pray that conviction would come upon him and he would turn to You. Some of us may not be ready for that, but if we look at our own lives, if you could save someone like us, you save someone like him. So we pray for justice, grace, and mercy. God, you are in control of all things. You're completely sovereign, completely holy, and you are good Father, and we do praise you for allowing Jamie to be found. And Lord, you've created her as a human with physical, spiritual, mental, social needs. And so we ask, Lord, for healing on her life in so many ways. Lord, physically, emotionally, as she mourns the death of her parents, as she celebrates um, the family that she still has in the warm home and um, the care of the community, Lord, but we ask ultimately that she would be healed, Lord, that she would be restored, that she would know um, your love, Lord, and that there would be no bitterness in her heart that is planted in this situation, but instead what was intended for evil would be used by you for good to draw her close to you, that she would know you her good father and that you were with her every step of the way and that prayers were answered and that you're the one who orchestrated so sovereignly her being found. Lord, we pray for healing on the community, Lord, that you would allow there to be no fear, but instead you would Give us grace to depend on you and fully trust you. Lord, so that you are glorified. Thank you that you are good and that we can come before you and trust that you can heal. And ultimately, we pray that souls would be healed through this whole process. That can only be done through the knowledge and belief in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we are so thankful to come before you this morning. Amen. Amen. So I think it would be right after this great thing that has happened, 
If you're at a sports event and someone does something amazing, you stand up and cheer. Let's stand up and thank the Lord. Give Him a standing ovation for what He has done. He deserves all praise and glory for this great accomplishment. Amen. Amen. Right, we are currently beginning our series, Christ in the Old Testament. We're taking two years to go through the whole Old Testament. We're not going to go page by page. We are going to go book by book. Is sometimes very quickly, sometimes slowing down at different books like Exodus and Isaiah and Psalms because they're very significant pointing to Christ in the Old Testament. But as we begin this, we want you to know that if you weren't here last week, we have a calendar so you can kind of follow along each week where about we're going to be. And we have extra ones on our resource center on the wall there on the Maranatha part if you want to pick those up so you can see kind of where we're going. But to begin this, we wanted to take time and just affirm to you that we can trust this Word as we go through the Old Testament, as we look through Scripture, as we look at some of these ancient texts, we want to make sure that you know you can trust this Word that we have. This isn't just a bunch of stories collected and it's just kind of pieced together. You can truly trust this. And this also is the book and the message that this dying world is longing to know. So we've been, we're going to take three weeks. And the purpose of these next weeks is to strengthen our confidence in God's Word and His work in preserving His Word so that we can know Christ more. We can have assurance that this truly is God's Word, His divine Word. It is inspired by Him. It is the authority is what we're looking at this week. And the next week, it is accurate. Last week, we covered that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And then from our statement of faith, we believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors as verbally inspired Word of God. Thus, we can trust it. We took some time and looked at 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. Every part of this is from God. Thus, we can trust it. It has divine origin. It is inspired by God. It is a product of divine revelation. Because God is the source and the author of the Bible, His words are true, reliable, and we can trust it. We also took time talking about translations last week and the importance of that we have different translations. And the goal, and I said this, the goal of our main translations is for people to have a relevant and at the same time a true to the text Bible in our hands. And at times, this isn't as easy as we think. Oh, just get a translation, and there it is. And we looked at a couple verses. Let me look at another one. Take, for example, the text in Thessalonians that says, greet one another with a holy kiss. You've read that before. Okay. Imagine if Pastor Eric, before every Sunday, all right, thanks for coming to Maranatha. If you could take a moment and greet one another with a holy kiss. How many people go, what? Hey, that's not holy over there. Okay, that one is. What do we do with this? Imagine a map at the door. Okay, it's time for greeting each other with holy kids. Only my wife. I'd be like, please, please, keep going through the doors. What do we do with that? 
It's not saying that we should kiss everyone or that we should do it, well, well, this one's holy, this is not a holy kiss. We need to ask, what did it mean to the author and to the audience at that time? This was a very conventional way of greeting people that reflected and expressed honor and friendship. For instance, the many times I've been there, I think uh, nine times to Bolivia, when I go to Bolivia, a common way to greet females is you kind of go cheek to cheek and make a kiss sound. And maybe you've seen that in other countries like France. They kind of do these little you know, nod. And unfortunately for me, the first time I was in Bolivia, they were like, turn to the right, turn to the right. So I kept going, wait, is it the left? Is it the right? I forgot. And as I went to greet someone, I went the wrong way, and it was disastrous. I caught this lady's lip, and it was horrible, and oh... And I thought of this verse, well, at least I'm biblical. Well, again, translations do a great job today to convey what back then, greet one another. Now, we, it, for us, it's handshakes. It's interesting. <laughs> Let me just say this. Um, once in a while, I'll get things, as a pastor, you get things in the email saying, 10 things that can destroy your church. And, and most of the times, I, I ignore them because one of the 10 things, often it is there, have time of greeting. People don't like to greet anymore, so don't do that. That will destroy your church. That will destroy your church? What about false doctrine? But anyway. We greet one another. If you have a cold, just fist bump if that's what you want to do. Greet one another. So our Bibles today are reliable and we can trust them. We can trust the promises of God. We can stand on the promises of God. I'm like, I love that hymn. As a little kid, I would sing that one loud. And as our statement of faith says, we believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures both Old and New Testaments. So take a look at this picture here. This is an example of what we have in our Bibles. In fact, take your Bibles and turn to the beginning, the table of contents. Take a look at the books that we have in our Bibles. And again, one... One of the goals that we're going to do as we go through the Old Testament is we're going to kind of see the timeline of where the books kind of line up in the timeline. Does it match the way they're in our canon? Then the way the structure of our Bible has that. So if you look at the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the books of Moses. Those are the Torah. Have you heard that word? Which means law or instruction. So if you're in the Psalms or in Romans 3 and you see law in capital L, that means the first five books. When it's small l, it means the rest of the Old Testament. So the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are the law. Then we've got the historical books. And then you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And this kind of lays out a timeline of all the things that have happened. As we will see in the next two years, Isaiah fits in there. Jeremiah fits in there. Psalm fits in there in different parts of that. Then we have Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's the end of the timeline we'll see here in the future. That's the end of the timeline of the Old Testament. But in our Bible, then we have some poetry. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then, in the Old Testament, we have the prophets at the end. 
And there's what we call the major prophets, which are those there, those four, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel. The reason they call them major is not because they have a major force and then the minor prophets have a minor, they're not as strong. Major because they have the most writing. Isaiah alone has 66 chapters. Jeremiah is very lengthy. Ezekiel is very long compared to Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Those are very short, so they're minor in size compared to the major ones, major in length. So you've got the major prophets, then the minor prophets. And again, in 2020, that summer, we're going to go every week through the minor prophets once a week. It's going to be a great study as we do this. And then if you look in our Bibles, and we've got the New Testament. Some, one of my friends who's a dear Old Testament professor, he would rather call it the First Testament and the Second Testament because he kind of has this feel like everyone goes, oh, the Old Testament's old. Don't read it. We got the New. You don't need the Old. So the New Testament. We got the Gospels. These are these written accounts. Mark wrote, and then Matthew and Luke saw, and we need to write again, and then John wrote. These are the accounts of Jesus. And then you've got history, Acts. Take a look at it. That's the historical section. And we're going to find, we'll, we'll do this as we go through the Old Testament, we'll see that the epistles kind of fit in to the book of Acts. In fact, when we went through Ephesians, we took time and looked at Acts 19. That was Ephesus. So you've got Acts, and then you've got Romans, 1 Corinthians. Then you've got those small epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and those are the writings of Paul. Then there's some other writings that we have, other letters, Hebrews, James, Peter and John, and then the book of Revelation. This is our Bible. And the Bible consists of a collection of 66 writings, many authors spanning hundreds of of years and as we will see they're still congruent because it's inspired by god and in it contains one book 66 books one book with the main message of salvation what we need the most from genesis to revelation the bible reveals how god saves sinners through his son jesus christ but some of you may look at that and go, well, I grew up in maybe a, the Catholic Church. And I grew up where there were other books included in there. What about the Catholic Bible? They have other books in there. 14 books, I believe. I didn't grow up Catholic, so I don't know much about the Apocrypha. So let me just give you a little history of the Apocrypha. 400 years before Christ was born, some writings were being written that were not in Hebrew, very important to know, that just talked about some general history, some polity of the time, and they were being collected and being passed around. Maccabees and other writings were being passed around. They weren't written in Hebrew. And they contained some interesting stuff. And the Jews, they had trouble with it because they believed after Malachi, that was all inspired by God. That was their canon. That was all inspired by God. And they believed that God would be silent until the Messiah came. So the Jews had these writings that were also being passed around. And they, they didn't know what to do with them because, again, they believed 
that God stopped speaking at that when the prophets were done, but they continued to be spread around and read. Even during the time of Jesus, they were around. About 60 years, A.D. 90, after Jesus passed away, the Jews finally said, these books are not a part of the Old Testament. They made a strong statement. We will not read them. They are not a part of us. No way. Then in church history, in the first couple centuries, many would read them, but they would say, don't get theology from them. Oh, they're good history. You could read them, but don't get theology from them. And then in the 5th century, they called these the Apocrypha, which means hidden. During the Reformation, there was this renewal for the Word of God. We talked about that last week. The printing of Bibles, getting Bibles in everyone's hand. At this time, the Catholics went to the Apocrypha to confirm some of their doctrines. Indulgence, purgatory. And then, at the Council of Trent, they said, these are a part of God's Word and canonized them. But reformers like Luther and others did not like that. They did not like that these writings would be connected at all with Scripture. So Luther, when he translated his Bible, he did the Old Testament, he did the New Testament. He translated the Apocrypha, but set it aside, which is very important. Three things about the Apocrypha that Protestants say this is not the Word of God. Number one, it wasn't written in Hebrew. The prophets were done. And this wasn't written in Hebrew. Number two, it wasn't accepted by Judaism. The, the Jews said this is not a part of our Scripture. And number three, there's much questionable theology. Like the origin of sin, what they say in the Apocrypha does not line up with Scripture, both old and new. It doesn't line with the rest of Scripture. So along with much of church history, and we as Protestants, we would say the Apocrypha is not inspired by God. This is the Word of God that we have. So the Bible is the inspired Word of God because the Bible says so, right? Right. But, we could be blamed for circular argument and reasoning if we stop there. The Bible says it's inspired by God, so that way it proves it's the Word of God. I could say, I am a muscle man who's going to try out for Mr. Mr. Olympia this year, and I believe it because I said so I'm the greatest, strongest man in the world. Does that make and prove that I'm the strongest man in the world? My youngest daughter would say yes. Please, she's not here, so you can say no now. No. This witness, we could be blamed for circular re reasoning argument here. This, this witness alone doesn't prove our case. Oh, it proves it for me by faith. But it doesn't prove our case. Many books have been written. This is the Word of God. Well, how do we know it's the Word of God? You have to prove your case. Many claim it's inspired because it says so. Thus it is. The Bible claims it is from God. But how can we prove it? What evidence do we have that the Bible that we have is truly the Word of God? Or what makes our religious book, this would be someone from outside, what makes our religious book different from this religious book? How do we know 
which one is true? Here is the holy Word of God that Christians use. This, and when I got this, I was surprised they put the word holy. This is the Quran that Islam uses. Both say they're from God. Well, they must be both from God, right? What do we do? And this is important. Instead of just blind faith or just faith in the first part, it's inspired because Scripture says we must be like historians and let's go through and find out and ask and seek to see are these claims true or are these claims true? Which one of these is true? So let's take a look at this here. Many, it's interesting that many that follow Islam never read this because they have different languages and this is an Arabic and, and they don't have that down. They have a couple of the phrases memorized. But when you read through this, there are multiple, multiple problems. When we look at the Quran, we see that there are many problems within this book. One is that Muhammad had multiple revelations that kind of help confirm and convenience himself to have multiple wives. It's very convoluted and very shocking to see some of his revelations coming from God that are just contradicting other revelations, and it's a mess. Another one is the claim in here in chapter 2, verse 23, that says this is the Word of God. The argument they use is so invalid, so disastrous, I think they're embarrassed about that. Another, and again, there's many false claims and errors within the Quran. But the number one thing, I believe, is what we call the Islamic problem. Islam has a problem with this book pertaining to saying it's the Word of God based upon this. The Quran affirms in chapter 5, verse, let me just hear, verse 68, that the Bible is the Word of God and is authoritative inspired. They've, the, this confirms that this is the Word of God. You should believe this because the Scriptures, the law they say, and all the Scriptures is the Word of God. But the Bible states that Jesus is the Son and Savior of the world. So the problem is, they say that this is true. This says that Jesus is the Son of God. This denies that. Thus, this contradicts what is true. And then we say then, because of this, the Quran denies the Bible, yet it affirms it. So there's two possibilities. I know this is very analytical and logical, but think through this. There's two possibilities. Either the Bible is the inspired Word of God, or it is not. Again, we're, we're acting like historians. Stepping aside here and thinking, just let's logically think through this. If this is truly inspired Word of God, it is, or it's not. If the Bible is the inspired and authoritative Word of God, then Islam is false. Because this contradicts what is inspired. You hear that? Or, on the other hand, if this is not the inspired Word of God, Islam is false again. 
because they say it is the inspired Word of God. And here is their dilemma. The claims of other religious books stating that they're the authoritative Word of God or they're inspired by God or their deity, when you match it with Scripture, you realize that their claims fail where this one holds true. And if you have more questions about that, if you maybe deal with some of our Somali population, you'd like to think through that, I'd love to meet with you and think through some of these logical things about the difference between the Bible and the Quran. It's interesting to affirm, to study, to seek, and I've done this a lot, testing this book, acting like a historian, realizing this is true. And I look at the claims of the other religious books, and I laugh out loud. This week in my office, I laughed a couple times out loud when I read other religious books going, that's a logical fallacy. It just falls apart. But here it is. How do we know this is true? Well, we know that this is not true. But how do we know that this truly is the inspired Word of God? As a historian, what would they say? they got to look at it. Here it is. Listen and write this down. The main evidence that we have affirming and proving this is the inspired and authoritative Word of God, here's the main thing. The main evidence is the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what it lies on. If you want to study this more, go to Lee Strobel or um, Josh McDowell. They have written multiple books on this concept. The main argument is that his resurrection from the dead confirms and validates and verifies his message in this book. This is true. And that's what seals the deal for Christianity. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus believed the Bible. Believed it was divinely inspired. It was historically accurate. And since Jesus rose from the dead, he is God. Thus, his view on the Bible is the right one. And his resurrection validated all the prophecies that were fulfilled. And we're going to take two years looking at, look, this is real. Look at what was spoken about in Genesis 3, 15. Look at what was spoken about in Exodus. Look at all this beautiful stuff. Jesus fulfills and verifies that. And his resurrection seals the deal, proving this is wholly true. His resurrection validated all the prophecies that were filled in Him, validating the truthfulness of God's Word and that His claims were correct. Whereas other religious writings try to validate their claims, but they fall apart. Here we have truly God, truly man, dying, rising again, seals the deal. Yes, this truly is the inspired Word of God. In light of His resurrection and the truthfulness of His claims for Himself, we must consider the Bible to be the true Word of God. You have within your hands the true Word of God. History proves it. Other religions even prove and validate What we have is right and true. And His resurrection 
is what does it for sure. So today, as we talked about inerrancy, let's now look at authority. Today we look at the topic of authority. The Bible is the authoritative Word of God. It's inspired by God. It's His book, but it's also the authoritative Word of God. Because the Bible is true, and here's from our statement of faith, the Bible is the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. And this echoes what the Reformers in the 1500s fought so much for. They said, sola scriptura, the Word of God alone is the final authority. It's the ultimate authority. Yes, we have other authorities in the world, but this is our ultimate authority. They fought against the popular thought, well, the church has as much authority as this. And tradition has much authority. They said, uh-uh, this is the great authority of our lives. In fact, the Evangelical Free Church has its roots in the Reformation movement. In the state churches of Scandinavia, can't say it with that great accent that some of you can, but they had this church controlled by the government. And the church was saying, you must do this, you must do this. And finally, those in the free church had this catchphrase in the evangelical free church. Where stands it written? Was their phrase. Where stands it written? For faith and practice. Oh, you better be doing this because that's what the church says. Well, where stands it written? And they would always turn the Bible. The Bible was central to it all. Thus, the Bible shapes both how we are to think and how we are to act. And the purpose of inspiration is not just having truth statements, but changed lives. That's so important. These are truth statements, but they must shape our behavior and lives and how we act. And that's what our statement of faith says and reflects upon. So three ways this can be done. Number one, it is to be believed in all that it teaches. This is the foundation of how I should act and behave when I'm at work, when I'm in leisure, when I'm on vacation, how I fish and hunt, how I treat others, how I treat my neighbor looks very differently than me, how I treat someone who hurts me, I turn to this. And this is to believe, be believed in all that it teaches. I'm amazed at how many of us don't really know the Sermon on the Mount. One of the greatest messages ever given, the greatest sermon, Jesus unfolds the beauty. And we'll look at it as we look at Christ. He unfolds the beauty of the law. What its purpose was but He transforms it and goes deeper. We must believe what Jesus teaches. We are not over this. We are under it. We are not to be the master of it. It should master us. Believe what it teaches. The Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to understand. And all who will read it seeking God's help to follow it. We must believe this. 
fact, in two weeks, we're going to begin talking about creation. Again, that's trying to be eroded. The concept of creation is trying to be eroded all around us in our society and world. We're going to take time affirming what Scripture teaches. Jesus and His fulfillments. We are to believe them. They affirm, unlike other books, they affirm and prove that this is true. Believe the Word of God. Secondly, we are to obey in all that it requires. All these are God's Word. To obey them means you love and follow Him. And to disobey the Word of God means to disobey God Himself. All these words must have a bearing on how you act in society. How you love your spouse how you treat your children, how you obey your parents. It must be the governing principle in our lives as we surrender our will to this will and have our minds captive to His thoughts. May your passion be conforming your mind and will to His will. Listen to what Jesus says. John 8.31 if you really are my disciples, or it's, you really are my disciples if you build the biggest church in town and get everyone to celebrate. Sorry, that was a different translation. You really are my disciples if you hold to my teaching. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm a Christian and I believe him in thought and mind. But if you don't do it in action, you have every right to people to come beside you and say, are you really a Christian? We're not saved by works, but we're saved to do these works that He planned in advance for us to do, and that's conforming to His will. Or John 14.15 If you love Me, you will obey what I commanded. Don't want to embarrass anyone, but could you right now write down at least from I'll just do from the New Testament or the Old Testament, write down the Ten Commandments? Could you write them all down? Or could you write ten things that Jesus commanded in Scripture? If not, get busy learning. And we're going to do that the next two years. Obey all that it requires. We must apply the Word of God in our lives. Have lifestyle obedience. Lifestyle worship. And we're going to see in the Old Testament three main words that God requires, repeats often and often. Know me, worship me, and obey me. Know me, worship me, and obey me. And then I'm all... I'm tempted almost to throw in loyalty because he's always about be loyal to me, which is obedience, be lo- and worship that's kind of connected. Know, worship, and obey. And the last thing. Trusted. The Word of God is to be trusted in all that it promises. That last song we sang, Standing on the... How many like that as, as a kid? I love that song. What are the promises of God? They're found in Jesus. What does that all mean? I can't wait to dive into that. We must trust the message of the Bible. 
and this is important, the message of the Bible just doesn't stop at salvation. When a person decides to follow Jesus, a lot of us think, oh, I just trust Jesus, check, there's my box. The message of the Bible doesn't stop at salvation. All the words must have a bearing on our lives and we must trust it and live it out in obedience, believing it and trusting it. A knowledge of God's Word that doesn't result in action serves only to endorse pride and legalism. We must hunger after God's Word. We must hunger after God's Word for the purpose of knowing God. Don't just get it so you can go, I've got Romans 8 memorized, Pastor Cody. Give me the next chapter to memorize. Then I'll say Psalm 119. Have fun with that one. 170-some verses. The purpose of getting in this is to know God and it will trickle into your heart and life and transform your soul and lives. Men and women, be men and women of the Word. As you know, we've got new Bibles and our older ones are there for you. I encourage you, grab a Bible for each one of your cars. So that way, if you've got five minutes, and I always have a book with me, so that way if I've got five minutes in a row, I'm just going to keep reading. Have the Word of God with you. Grab one for your office. Put it by your desk so you have it. Not just so you can know about God and His greatness, but you can share about God and His goodness in your life. I love 1 Peter 1.23 says this, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. May we be joyful that this is truly the inspired, authoritative Word of God. And if other religious books come up, do kind of like what we did. Think through but I can let you know and testify those will only prove even more that this truly is God's Word. Today, you can have the assurance that the Bible is the divinely inspired source of wisdom and knowledge for life and practice. Go live in the beauty of the Word of God. Let's end by turning to Psalm 19. The worship team can come up. When I was a little boy, I went to this Christian school when I was in fourth grade. And they said, hey, if you memorize verses per week or whatever, you get awards and stuff. And I was so excited. Oh, I can do that. And they had us memorize Psalm 19, and I was pumped. I was the first one, got up, set it all out. They gave me a star by my name. That's all I got. Oh, that wasn't the reward. The reward is knowing this passage that helped me fall in love even more with this beautiful, divine Word of God. Psalm 19, 1-6, talk about God's great revelation in creation, how glory, how the world speaks of His greatness. But even greater than that is how He's revealed Himself 
through His Word. Verses 7 through 14. Here it is. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Psalm 19, verse 10. They are more precious than gold. Right here is more precious than gold. They are sweeter than honey. Than honey from the honeycomb. By them is your servant warm, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sins that they may not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgression. May the words of my heart and the meditations of my mind be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength, my rock, and my redeemer. This is so wonderful. Let's stand and worship the Lord.